Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and healthcare practice leader at Retzel and Andrus. And today I am joined by Elisa Taub, who's a partner in the immigration boutique law firm Siskin Sasser. She's been practicing law exclusively in the immigration field for over 15 years and leads the health care immigration practice at her firm, where she handles immigration matters for all types of health care providers, including doctors, nurses, physical therapists, medical technologists, and more. She's also the co-author of the Physician Immigration Handbook and is regularly invited to speak and present on matters related to healthcare immigration. And we're very excited to have you. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Today, we're going to cover a really great topic having to do with employment-based immigration issues for physicians and other healthcare providers, which I know is a topic that you deal with uh, exclusively. And it's a topic that comes up very often uh, for many of my clients, whether they're employers or employees, they often are not from the United States, uh, but may be studying here, working here, wanting to move here, etc. So I'm very excited to talk about this, and uh, I think everybody listening will enjoy this topic as well. So first of all, why don't we start off by just having you describe a little bit what your role is in the immigration process, and what do you, what do you do exactly? Yep. So I think sometimes when we talk with folks, um, in fact, I spoke with a physician today who was like, so exactly where do you come in? Um, Our role is, I guess, twofold. Uh, We advise physicians and other healthcare professionals, as well as their employers or their prospective employers, on all aspects of the immigration process. So what types of process would be needed if it's possible what the potential hurdles might be or risks of proceeding. And then um, once an employment relationship is created uh, or is intended to be created, we actually carry out the preparation and filing of the applications with the government and see that through and help folks navigate that process in, in actuality. So it's both on the strategy and advice part, but also on carrying out those plans on the back end. So how are physicians generally ending up in this country? Are they mostly coming over when they're already, um, you know, educated? Are they coming here, getting their education and then staying? What is your, what are you seeing, I guess, is the way to ask. Most most physicians that we work with uh, go to medical school somewhere abroad, whether it's in their home country or another country. And when they come to the United States, they're initially coming Uh, for purposes of a medical residency or a fellowship. So for that graduate medical education, uh, that's what they're usually coming here for. And they're usually coming to the United States. They need a visa for that. So they're usually coming either on an H-1B visa or more commonly these days on a J-1 visa to participate in whatever graduate medical education program they come to the U.S. to do. And it's that initial step, whichever status they come in that sort of sets them up in terms of what comes next as they go to finish that training program. So when they are finishing their training program, what should they be thinking about? Because I assume the visa tied to the training is going to end. So when do they need to start thinking about it and what are their options? I, you know, my 
personal opinion is that it's never too early for an international physician to start checking out the job market, depending on you know, what their level of training is, what their career goals are. So if a physician is coming to the United States and their plan is to complete a three-year internal medicine residency and then go on to work at an outpatient internal medicine practice or maybe as a hospitalist, I don't even, when they're PGY1, so we're in their first year of residency, I don't think that's too early to start just making you know, connections with recruiters, start looking around what's out there, what kinds of jobs might I be eligible for. Uh, same thing with somebody who might want to go on to subspecialize and do a fellowship, maybe toward the end of your residency, you know, once you know you're matched with that fellowship, starting to network in your field is really important because ultimately, as you mentioned, Erica, as folks are transitioning from their training program to their first attending job, they're going to need some sort of immigration sponsorship. And the sooner they can connect with an employer about that and kind of be upfront and, and let folks know what they need, the better chance that they're going to be you know, set up for success in that process. So do you find that there's some employers that just are not interested in dealing with uh, foreign physicians because it's just too complex or they don't know what they're doing or it's expensive? Um, and should physicians kind of focus on employers that already have that experience or what do you usually recommend? So there are, you know, there are some employers who are reluctant or hesitant to enter into the, you know, to, to kind of enter into the physician immigration world for all of the reasons that you mentioned. And some of it is just a fear factor, or maybe they had a bad experience in the past. So they're like, we don't ever want to do that again. But as the economics of healthcare staffing become more challenging, uh, we see more and more facilities who maybe have never tried you know, to sponsor somebody, whether it's a physician or a nurse even, um, have never really dipped their toe into those waters now, like wading in up to their hips, uh, trying to recruit folks. And so um, it's becoming more common. So when a physician is talking with an employer about prospective employment, I think it's important for them to ask, you know, have you done this before? What's your experience been? Uh, you know, do you have immigration counsel already that, you know, is ready, you know, that kind of knows you and knows the process? Uh, and even, you know, with my own uh, employer clients, I usually, you know, demand that I want to talk with the physicians that are their candidates that they might be hiring. So, you know, is there an opportunity to talk with the employer's immigration attorney before you sign a contract to kind of, you know, get to know them a little bit and, and feel comfortable with how that process goes? So, you know, I, I also think that physicians need to be upfront about their immigration needs right when they start to meet recruiters. Uh, I Back pre-COVID, I used to go to a lot of physician career fairs to talk with doctors, and I it would drive me a little bit, you know, batty listening to some of the conversations because some physicians tried so hard not to admit that they were on a J1 or to admit that they had the need for H1B sponsorship. And I'm like, just tell them, like, go up, say, hi, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and I'm, you know, in the United States training uh, in an internal medicine residency, and I'm on a J-1. Do you offer J-1 waiver sponsorship? Like, get it out of the way really early on, because if they say no, then move on. <laughs> if they say, well, I don't know, we haven't done that before, but maybe we'd be open to it. Great. That's wonderful. Like, that curiosity, we can work with that. 
Um, but at least you know, and they know up front what the expectation is. Because what I've also seen happen is a physician who goes in, says nothing, signs a contract. And then it turns out that maybe the sponsorship they were expecting isn't available. And nobody's happy when that, you know, when, when things come up at the last minute like that. So in terms of the ability of employers to sponsor physicians and healthcare providers, is it hard? I mean, does everybody who wants to hire a foreign physician, do they, do they get what they need? Or, I mean, we have a desperate need for doctors and healthcare workers in this country. Are there spots available? Are very valid candidates not able to get it? And what happens you know, when that occurs? Yeah, so that's a great question. There's um, yes and no. <laughs> Uh, it's, I guess, you know, the very lawyerly answer to your question is it depends. Uh, it depends on what the physician's immigration status is during their training and what their needs are post-training and some of the characteristics of the employer. So, for example, a physician who comes to the United States on a J-1 visa for purposes of graduate medical education is subject to something called the two-year home residence requirement. That requirement, it's written into the law, and it says that these physicians make a promise that at the end of their J-1 program, so at the end of their you know, residency or fellowship, they have to return back to their home country for two years or get a waiver of that requirement to not have to get home. But whether, you know, if they don't fulfill it or they don't get a waiver, their immigration pathway in the United States is very limited for the short and long term. So most physicians, as they're nearing the end of their training, and I'm saying like a year or two before they finish their training, uh, are going to start looking for jobs that might sponsor them or might be able to support a waiver. And the most common types of waivers that physicians seek are those based on their making a commitment to work three years full time in an underserved area somewhere in the United States. So these are federally designated areas that have a shortage of healthcare workers, these physicians have strong incentive to go work in those areas. And they're not our rural. They can be, I'm sitting here in Memphis, Tennessee, and there's a good portion of our medical corridor in the city that's underserved. So um, they can be urban, they can be suburban or rural. Um, every state can support up to 30 physicians in a federal fiscal year for these waivers. Uh, but there are also some federal agencies, notably like HHS, uh, also some regional uh, commissions like the Delta Regional Authority, the Appalachian Regional Commission, and the Southeast Crescent Regional Commission, which is a new one, that can support unlimited waivers for physicians, either in certain geographic areas or with certain types of backgrounds like primary care, you know, HHS will only support primary care, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of nooks and crannies to all of this. Um, but for the most part, now that these federal agencies have expanded their waiver options, most physicians who want to remain in the US, most J-1 doctors who want waivers can get waivers. Um, now, if you're a, an employer that's not in the jurisdiction of one of these regional agencies and that isn't hiring primary care doctors, but is looking for like a pulmonary critical care physician, you're probably going through your state's Conrad or state 30 program. And then the, you know, the opportunities might be limited depending on where you are. Um, you know, New York is going to receive a huge number of applications every year as does Texas, right? Because they're large population states and they still only get 30 waivers. So the odds there may be a little more difficult than say, seeking a waiver in, um, 
you know, Colorado or Montana or Wyoming, where lower population centers, lower demand for waivers. So that's why it depends, right? Um, on the H-1B side, for doctors who come to train on H-1Bs, they have a whole other set of circumstances that can limit where they look for jobs. They may not be looking in private practice for jobs. They may be looking more in the academic sector because the road to getting an H-1B is going to be more smooth going through you know, potential academic employer than through a private practice. So on both ends, you see limitations, but there's a, there's a way to navigate it. And you know, as immigration attorneys, when you know, going back to that very first question, these types of conversations are what we have with physicians when we talk with them and help them strategize you know, through their job search. So should physicians be hiring their own lawyers to help them, or is it usually going to be the employer's lawyer that's kind of helping them through the process? So most of the time, it's going to be the employer's lawyer who's going to do the actual work on the process. They, you know, the a lot of, especially if it's an employer that does this regularly and has retained counsel for these kinds of things. And I tell doctors, if your employer has an attorney that they're comfortable working with, use that attorney. They know each other well. They know how to navigate the process together. Uh, they may have had many years of experience working together. It all, it behooves you to work with the employer's lawyer. On the other hand, sometimes physicians don't know where to start in their job search, or they're not sure, you know, they're hearing different things from different people um, as they go through their job search, and they're not quite sure where things come down and, you know, what's real. So in those cases, you know, sometimes I'll have physicians who schedule consultations with me to say, I just need to know, like, what are my options? Where should I be looking for a job? How does this process work? I'm doing all of this reading and I'm talking to these people and I've just totally confused myself, right? So they may not need me at every stage of the process, but for that consultation to just kind of understand how things work, that can be a really valuable conversation. That's great. And, you know, one of the things, you know, obviously I'm a healthcare lawyer and when I interact with doctors, it can be to review their employment agreements, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't do any immigration law, but a lot of times I'll be the one looking at the contract where they're going um, to an underserved area to work. And one of the things that always strikes me is that they expect to see certain things in their agreement. One is uh, a commitment for three years, Mm -hmm. Um, and so they say, oh, I have a three-year contract and in their minds, they assume that that means that they can't be terminated in three years for three years. And, and that's really not true. I always tell my doctors, your, your contract is only as long as the notice provision, right? So if either party can terminate on 90 days notice, you really only have a 90 day contract and they find this kind of rather shocking. So what happens if they do get a job and they start working there and they're given that notice or maybe there's a termination for cause provision, or maybe, I guess, even worse alternative, we'll talk about this in a little more detail, the doctor is the one that wants to leave. You know, what happens at that point with their immigration status? Right, so, so for physicians who obtain J-1 waivers based on that three-year commitment, they are limited, they have a, there's a restriction that applies to them in being able to change jobs during those three years. The restriction is that they can only change jobs if there are extenuating circumstances that apply to their situation. And in the law, um, the only definition we get of extenuating circumstances is closure of the facility or hardship to the physician. And that hardship is further defined as a situation that was unforeseen by the physician at the time they got the waiver and outside their control. 
right? So that's usually the space that we find ourselves in with J1 physicians who need to change jobs. So a termination without cause, I spoke with a physician actually just this morning about that. A termination without cause is usually the cleanest, most straightforward way to show extenuating circumstances. Great example of this is a physician who might be a hospital medicine physician, emergency medicine, radiology, where they're working with a group that provides physicians to a particular hospital. And that hospital has decided to terminate their agreement with that group. And so therefore, by definition, that group has to terminate the employment of the physicians that are currently working at that location. So the physician receives their notice of termination and it says in 90 days or whatever it is, your employment is going to terminate pursuant to this provision. Um, we cannot continue to employ you here. And the physician is then picked up by the new provider at that location. Um, that's a very clear extenuating circumstance, right? The physician cannot continue working in that location, in that job. We can make that change. Um, so then sometimes, and we can talk more about this, but sometimes it, there are factual issues that come up. Uh, in that, in that um, equation. But on the more practical level, when the physician is given that notice of termination and they're told that their employment is going to end on March 31st, and let's say they have an H-1B that's approved through, you know, 2024, 2025 at this point, that physician from the last day of their employment has up to 60 days to have some other employer file a petition to change their H-1B status over to that new employer. Um, and if that happens, not only can that physician stay in the United States through their termination, you know, the notice period, the 60-day grace period, and through the filing of that new petition on to file, you know, work for the next employer, they can work for that next employer when that petition is filed. So, that would be, you know, best case scenario is you get that 90-day notice or 120-day notice, whatever it is, and you immediately do two things. You call, you, you schedule a consultation with an immigration attorney that's independent from your employer, and you immediately start looking for a job. Like, don't wait a day, like mourn it for a few minutes. Obviously, it's, you know, <laughs> jarring, and you're going to be have all of these emotions, and it's like terrible. And then like, take the bull by the horns and immediately do those two things. Call an immigration lawyer and um, start your job search. Uh, because time is of the essence. Every day is going to be important during that period. Um, now, what happens if you get to the end of that 60-day grace period and you haven't found a job, right? That you know, It happens sometimes that uh, you might have several offers out, but you haven't signed or you've signed, but the H-1B process can take a few weeks and maybe there's not enough time to get something filed. Um, you know, you may be able to file an application to change to visitor status, uh, you know, to stay here basically as a tourist or business visitor for up to six months while that process is, is ongoing. And then the new employer can change your employment from the visitor status to the age. Um, you know, there are, yeah, there are some situations where physicians just have to depart the United States for a period of time and then come back when everything works out, which is, you know, usually not what anybody really wants, but sometimes that's unavoidable. There may be other options involved there where you can kind of find a way to extend that stay, but that that's, those 60 days go by pretty quickly. So it's important to make the best use of that, of the notice period plus the 60 days gives you, you know, a good long period of time. That's great. I mean, that's really important information. You know, one of the issues I always have when I look at employment agreements for physicians that are here on a visa is 
that although they're often often a standard form, I find, and I don't know if it's just me because I'm not sure I've had this conversation with other lawyers who do what I do, but uh, sometimes find that these doctors are treated a little differently than other doctors. Uh, the employer may be less willing to make changes, uh, give less time for them to sign the contract. Um, and in some cases, I find that the doctors are somewhat mistreated in their employment roles. And it could be uh, a disproportionate amount of certain type of work or, or some other mistreatment like that. And I, I think in my experience, it's largely because they, the doctors in kind of, I don't wanna call it a desperate visa status, but in some cases, you know, the doctor feels rather desperate. They can't lose his job. They have to stay for three years. You know, they don't have another employer who's going to sponsor them. They'd have to move their family, uh, you know, and the doctor may, it just doesn't have some of the flexibility and freedom that a non-immigrant physician might have. And this is, I always find very frustrating uh, because it's happening, but, you know, you can't quite call it out because, you know, you'd be accusing the employer of doing something improper. Have you seen any of this kind of mistreatment? Have you heard about it? Am I the only one? I don't know. Um, you know, it, it does come up from time to time and it's very frustrating because I think because of that, because J-1 physicians, physicians that are fulfilling obligations under J-1 waivers have this extenuating circumstances limitation in their ability to change jobs. I think some employers view that as they've got this doctor locked up for those three years, and there's really nothing that that physician can do to fight back. And I have, over the years, worked with a number of physicians who found themselves in really challenging situations. Um, hospitalists who had so many patients that were assigned to them that no reasonable physician could work under that strain. I've had, I've worked with physicians who've literally gotten off the plane from international vacations to text messages that they needed to come immediately to the hospital because there were patients waiting for them. Um, physicians, you know, working weeks on end without a day off. Um, and in those cases, in those types of cases, we've been able to successfully help those physicians move to new employment. Um, you know, the most important thing, there are a couple of important things. Um, finding that new job that's willing to sponsor and being open with them. You know, if if the new job is with my employer client and that's how we've come to know each other, um, they're going to have me do a consultation and I'm going to try to elicit as much of these facts out of you as possible and talk about like, is this a viable transfer? And if I think it is, I'm going to go back to the new employer and I'm going to say, yeah, this is doable. Here's some of the background. I'm not going to give them all of the nitty gritty because they don't need it, but they need my assessment that this is a doable transfer. Um, and I'm going to ask the physician, what's your documentation? Do you have text messages that you can print out, emails, other written correspondence with your employer that shows that you're trying to work through these issues or, or how they're abusing you? Do you have schedules that you can print out and provide me so that I can show that you've literally been scheduled every single day for two months without a break? I mean, that is, you know, outrageous. And then we have the physician put together a personal statement uh, where they explain in their own words what's going on. And of course, we assist with that. But I like it to be as much in their voice as possible because it's obvious when I've written it, right? So I want the physician to take that first crack and I don't know all the facts, right? So give me 
you know, a recitation of everything and then we'll make it look pretty. Um, and we get all of that together and then we write, you know, kind of the legal brief part of that that explains that this is untenable. This situation that the physician finds them in is finds themselves in is not okay. Um, I've had physicians who've gone for, uh, you know, mental health care uh, with a counselor where the counselor then or the therapist, you know, writes a letter also saying it's in this physician's best interest to change jobs or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, we've had folks who, you know, really have been um, through the ringer. Uh, we had one, one physician whose employer was being threatened with the loss of their malpractice coverage because of the way that they were handling things. So any kind of, of that type of external documentation, what the government would call, you know, objective right. documentary evidence, anything like that can only, you know, enhance the application um, to be able to leave. So if you, you know, if the physician's really feeling that they need to quit, we usually like to file these applications before the physician gives a notice in sufficient time that once we have an approval notice from the government, they have time to give their you know, 90 days under the contract. I don't want the physician to give notice and put themselves in that bad position of us then having to file the H-1B transfer, not knowing that it's going to be successful and then if it's not, the physician's already given notice and the government has agree hasn't agreed with us that this warrants a change. So we want to be really mindful and really careful to protect the physician's interest so that they at least can continue working if the transfer doesn't work out. But on the whole, most of the ones that we've handled over the years have, have worked out well and the physicians have ended up in much better circumstances than they initially were. So, I mean, what I, when I ever put doctors on their contracts, I'm always trying to get in, you know, as much detail about the doctor's commitment, you know, time off, schedule, location, call, those kind of details. So in my mind, like from a pure contract perspective, by having those details in there, I'm protecting the doctor. But in hearing you speak, even if the employer breaches those requirements, before the doctor really wants to call the employer out on those things, they want to talk to you to be set up. Um, does being able to prove that the employer did not honor the contract, does that add to the argument as well? Yes. Uh, and that's really helpful. You know, if you're not, if you're, if your call is specifically set out in the contract and you're being asked to do way more call than what you originally agreed to, if you're not being paid at, at the hourly rate that you were promised or uh, not being compensated for certain things in your practice that you were supposed to be compensated extra for, or you know, whatever it is. I once worked with a physician who was supposed to be credentialed at a separate facility. Um, and one day the physician shows up and found, finds out that um, her credentialing was revoked without her notice by the hospital that employed her. So she showed up to this these hours that she was scheduled for and found out that like she wasn't able to work there anymore and nobody had told her. Um, and it was written in her contract that they were supposed to allow her to have hours there. So that formed, that wasn't the only issue, but it definitely formed, you know, right. a, a, the crux of our argument. So there can be all kinds of um, situations that might arise. And I think, you know, if you're in a, if a physician is in a situation where they're, they're feeling uneasy they there's some kind of disconnect between them and the employer and they feel like things are going in the wrong direction before they take any action, before they just get aggravated and give notice or um, take some action that might be averse to them. From a Im purely immigration perspective, they definitely want to consult with an immigration lawyer. And I think 
on the contract side of things, you know, there are sometimes things that we can't avoid, right? There are some J-1 programs that are going to require that there be no termination without cause provision in the contract. That termination can only be for cause during those mm-hmm. first three years. And that, it irks me so much because that doesn't protect the doctor. All that does is end up with a doctor with a termination for cause that makes it harder for them to change jobs. Um, it doesn't mean that nobody's going to get terminated for bad reasons, right? Like right. I think on the on the state, on the government side, they think, well, if we get rid of termination without cause, then um, people won't willy nilly apply for the, with these waivers. They'll know, you know, that these are important. Well, everybody knows that. But now you're forcing the employer's hand to terminate in a way that doesn't really benefit anybody. Uh, So it really frustrates me. Yeah, I I get that too. And I'm usually, you know, before they call their immigration lawyer, they're usually talking to me about what's going on with their employer. And it's very frustrating, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes merely because it's a doctor and a visa, they won't even negotiate the contract. They'll say, this is it, take it or leave it. So we often don't even have a chance. And all I can really do is help the doctor understand what's in there good or bad, right? That's really the limit of what I can do. So do you see things changing at all in the next few years related to physician options for visas and immigration? Uh, Do things, are you hearing anything about a different approach because we have healthcare shortages or do you kind of think things are gonna, you hear chatter for many years and it's always stayed the same and it will always stay the same? Um. I would like to think that there could be some changes. There have been some bills um, taken around Congress for probably the last decade that would make some really needed changes to the J-1 waiver process, might enhance some options for H-1B physicians, and might enhance some green card opportunities for physicians. Um, the, the same bill or similar bills have been keep getting introduced, but it's a tiny bill, right? It doesn't have any kind of really major budgetary impact um, it's been by you know agreed to on a bipartisan basis for many years, but when it comes down to it, I mean, I literally sat in the room with congressional staffers who say, "I'm totally behind your bill. How are you going to get it passed?" And I'm like, "Well, last I checked, I wasn't the one that was elected. So how are you going to get it passed?" Right. Um, so you know, it, it, it's really hard to get it over that hump and kind of get it attached to something larger that has a chance of passing. Um, so you know, from a congressional standpoint. You know, my guess, my guess is as good as anyone's about what this particular Congress might accomplish. You know, outside of Congress with other like policy changes um, or other things that might happen. I mentioned earlier uh, the Southeast Crescent Regional Commission or SCRC is a brand new federal agency that just this summer um, brought online a new J-1 waiver program with unlimited uh with unlimited waivers that covers a good portion of the southeastern United States, including the entire state of Florida, uh, which it was previously almost impossible to get a waiver in Florida. And now, you know, it's like exploding. There are some other regional commissions that are in the process of being created or that were created by the infrastructure law at the end of last year, uh, notably in the Great Lakes region, um, on the northern northeastern border, like between um, New York and Canada, like in that region. There's also a Southwest Border Regional Commission. And right now there are some very, like there are some baby steps, very early steps to try to see if some of these newly created commissions will also create their own J-1 waiver programs. That would be tremendous. It would be tremendous for the employers in those regions to be on equal competitive ground 
with the employers who already are in regions covered by these kinds of agencies. And it would provide it physicians with so much more choice about where they might be able to work. They can go to where they want to be. And for the long term, that bodes well for employers because one of the biggest complaints I hear from employers about J-1 doctors is, well, they come and they complete their three years and then they leave because they're you know, kind of being forced to go work in places to get these waivers that maybe aren't necessarily where they want to be for the long term. So the more waivers that are available in places where physicians want to be, I think the more on it, like I said, the more even footing there can be. But um, you know, we'll we'll see. Though that's all very, you know, in very, very early stages of discussion. Um, but on a larger scale basis, I don't, I don't, I'm a little jaded in that regard. <laughs> it's hard to believe that there could be some, you know, sea change in the way physicians are immigrating to the US um, that's not currently on the table. Well, what, let me ask you then, and this is kind of a good question to kind of wrap this up. What happens at the end of their three years? Are most of them, uh, can they just go find a regular job somewhere? Do they have to apply for a green card? Well, what happens then? Yeah. So, mo and I will say, now that I just mentioned that, I, the vast majority of the physicians with whom I work stay at their waiver employers for at least you know, some period of time beyond those initial three years. And typically, what we're doing at that point is we're extending their H-1B status. And usually at some point along the way during those three years, to us together with their employer, we've initiated green card sponsorship for them. And if they're not subject to any sort of green card backlog, that means that in the year following the completion of their waiver service, they'll likely receive their green card. And then they can either stay with that employer for however, forever, or at some point in the future, maybe they move on or they open their own practice or, you know, whatever. And then um, years later, they can become U.S. citizens. So um, there's a, you know, a whole path there. Some physicians, like those who are born in India or China, are subject to very lengthy green card backlogs. For them, there may be incentive to stay with those employers for the longer term, but they also you know, can um, find mobility by having another employer transfer their H-1B employment um, for them. But uh, you know, typically beyond those three years, the next step is green card processing and just staying in that H-1B status as long as possible until the H-1B is, or until the green card is issued. And who usually pays for a lot of these immigration costs, especially that green card? Is it the employer? Is it a shared cost? And related to that, if the doctor is to leave, can the employer get that money back from them? When it comes to H-1Bs and um, a part of the green card process called a labor certification, the U.S. Department of Labor mandates that employers buy, pay all the fees associated with those applications. Pretty much everything else is open to negotiation. I find that because of the competitive job market, most employers are covering the fees, at least for the physician. Where I see a, maybe a passing on of fees is when it comes to the physician's family, you know, spouse, children. A lot of times they have to pay those costs themselves, but the employer is largely uh, paying the fees associated with that with the physician, and they look at that almost like a recruitment cost. Now, I say that. That's not a universal thing. So I don't want somebody listening to this today to go to their employer and say, hey, I heard this immigration lawyer and she told me you need to pay for all of this. <laughs> you know, but it's it's kind of like a market-based decision that right. some systems will make about you know what they're gonna pay for in that in that process. Right. Oh, fair enough. And I see a variation in this, but I do usually see the employer covering that cost. Uh, sometimes I do see, you know, if you leave within a certain amount of time, you're paying back certain things like mm -hmm. the signing bonus 
any costs incurred for the green card, et cetera. So it's kind of curious about, but it seems like it's probably limited to that piece that is not required for the employer to be paid. Exactly. I worry about payback provisions. We want to be very careful that it doesn't invoke any any um, fees required to be paid by law and doesn't Im implicate the physician's ultimate wage, like what they've earned so that they're falling below some prevailing Great. wage requirement. Um, the Department of Labor has indicated that they are okay with liquidated damages provisions. So where the where those are appropriate legally, that could be a way, um, you know, for an employer to kind of protect themselves. But a physician also wants to be aware, you know, if they see a $250,000 liquidated damages provision in their contract, well, that might be required by their J-1 program. But if it's not, they want to find out exactly like how that operates and, you know, if the employer has previously enforced that and what that looked like uh, before they sign on to something that big. But sometimes those are the best ways legally to get around uh, some of those issues. Wow. Well, there is so much to talk about here. We could probably go on like forever. So <laughs> we'll have to have you back and talk about some additional issues. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share on this topic? Um, oh, wow. Um, I, I think that one of the things that is particularly important to me, having done this work for so long and having worked with so many physicians, is it is apparent to me that when folks are in residency and fellowship, they a lot of times just do not get the level of information they need to have about their immigration status. So um, doesn't have to be me, but I definitely recommend that you know physicians who are in the U.S. on a visa who are in training and have not really navigated any of these parts of the process beyond just arriving here, you know, really do their homework and and learn as much as they can about what the requirements are for them so that as they go off into the working world and they you know, continue on their immigration journey in the United States, they make good choices <laughs> and they make good decisions or as much as possible. Um, and you know, whether that's listening to a podcast like this, get it happening on a webinar, you know, reading the physician immigration handbook, scheduling a consultation, uh, any of those things, um, or all yeah. of those things, um, the more information that they can can get, I think it can only be helpful. Great. Well, I think you've given some fantastic advice. And Alyssa, I thank you for joining us today. We'll share your information when we put this out. It'll be all over social media. And I'm hopeful if anybody has questions, please reach out directly to Alyssa. You can contact me and I'll just send you over her way because I don't know the answer to any of these questions. But, you know, we, this whole podcast is really about educating uh, physicians and other healthcare providers. And this is a really, really important topic. So thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, this has been the Health Law Hotspot. And if you want to catch some of our other podcasts, you can check out ralaw.com to find them. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.